0: The title today is, uh, as you could see, is The Westminster Confession of Faith. And I've spent past three Sundays, well last Sunday I wasn't here, but past three Sundays to introduce to you the concept of confessing Christ. How that lies at the heart of being a Christian and the Church of Jesus Christ. We even looked at like today in in the order of worship even Paul's own letters which is part of the Bible they contain such confessional statements you read the church history whatever wherever whichever period that you pick up you read the church history you will discover that the churches and pastors almost always produced the creeds and confessions with the purpose of teaching God's people of the truth but also to defend the truth from many different heresies. So we come to this fourth Sunday and If you would suffer with me this Sunday as kind of format of a lecture, more than uh, a sermon, more of a lecture than a sermon, uh, to give you some of the information that I have gleaned in my own studies past few months. But I would like to read 1 Timothy 6.12 because we, we need to have God's Word. And this verse is written down in Dr. Van the confessing, uh, the, the Confession of Faith, his own book, and the commentary in the very first page. He could have chosen many different passages, but this one was his choice. And let me read this in Jung's literal translation. Be striving the good strife of the faith. Be laying hold on the life aged during. Enduring, to which also thou wast called, and didst profess the right profession before many witnesses. Confessing, professing the right profession, Timothy did already, and the church is called to do that until his return. Today, so sit back and relax and try to take in some of the background information that I hope will give you, I don't know, whet your appetite to to study further on the confession of faith. When we gathered at Dr. Van Dixon's house early May, We were sitting right next to him and he asked this question to all of us, pastors and elders. Do you know when the Westminster Assembly, people who produced the confession, do you know when the assembly began or commenced? And I'm proud to say only I was able to quote from the memory and gave the right answer. I said, July 1st, 1643. July 1st was easy to remember. It's not July 12th. So it got stuck July 1st. What does that tell you? It was hot. It was not in the winter. It was not in the spring. It was not in the fall. But July 1st, hot summer day. The parliament, English parliament, has called the pastors from all over the england and wales together to produce the confession of faith 1643 i want you to remember that year 1643 if you are hearing this for the first time it is, it is a random year 1643 it's like saying i don't know 1615 i don't know what was going on back then? But 1643 was such a year to me. When I hear 1643, it didn't make any sense. 1643, what was that? Do you know 1517? The Reformation is 1517. October 31st, 95 theses. We know that. What is this weekend today? July 4th weekend. When was it? 1776. Why do we celebrate July 4th? Because the Second Continental Congress, they ratified and declared independence from whom? From the British crown, English crown. That's 1776 for this country. 1643, July 1st, is like that the confession of faith will function not only to profess and confess our faith in Christ, but it will also serve in some sense as a declaration of independence from then the King of England, Charles I, and his Archbishop, William Loud, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and they were suppressing the Puritan Reformation. They were changing everything back to a Roman church, a Romish church. So the confession back then, this is a great insight. When I hold up the confession of faith, for us is document for our doctrine. Doctrines to believe and confess. Back then, This was also a political document. I want you to remember that. For example, if I say in 1643, I am a Presbyterian, I am not saying I go to a Presbyterian church on a Sunday. That's how we think. You're a Baptist, you go to Baptist church. You're a Methodist. You go to Methodist church. You're an evangelical and you go to church. If I say I'm a Presbyterian now, they say that's Presbyterian, first Presbyterian, second Presbyterian church that you go to. Back then, there was no such thing. You go to church in England, a parish church, usually one in one village. But when I say back then, if I say I'm a Presbyterian, I am making a political statement as well. I am denying that there is such a person over me like a bishop. When I say I'm a Presbyterian, I deny that there is a church hierarchy over me who could tell me what to do, how to worship, and so on. So I am rejecting bishops, and I am also rejecting bishops are not Self-appointed, somebody's appointing bishops. Who is, who is doing that? Archbishop. He has authority to appoint bishops. So you are denying archbishop's authority. Who Who has given the archbishop the authority to appoint bishops? The king, the crown. So when I say I'm a Presbyterian, I am risking my life. That's why not many people were Presbyterian in England. Only the Scots were. They, were. they were away from the English crown. So when you read the Confession of Faith, when you come to the chapter, let's say a synod, on how the church, churches of, church of Jesus Christ to be governed, you, you pay close attention to what they are saying And they are making also a political statement. If you're a king, you don't want that. You don't want Presbyterians. You want them to obey you. You want to send your own bishops and tell them what to do. So, I want you to remember, back then in 1600s, the confession of faith would also function as, not simply as confession of Doctrines, but also as a political statement, somewhat, and that's how you will make military alliances as well. Sixteen forty-three is important here because sixteen forty-two summer, the English Civil War began between Charles the and the Parliament. It has been going on for decades. They didn't like the text. Um, They didn't like the way that the archbishop appointed by King Charles, how he was reversing the Reformation. And the bishops, and especially the archbishop, he had power to uh, uh, give a death sentence. So he had a lot of power. And the English war, civil war, began actually from Scotland and Ireland. Because in Ireland, Catholics killed uh, Protestant families. And also in Scotland, like I said, uh, King Charles sent bishops. And Scotland people didn't like that. So war began with the Scottish So something to think about. Also as a background, uh, something interesting for you to know is this. 1500s and 1600s, even before that, but 1500s and 1600s, if you were a theologian or a pastor worth his salt, he is able to read, write, And preach in what language? In Latin. So we are looking at the Westminster Confession of Faith that was written by the English people. Most of them. But what we have to understand in the 1600s is that between England and Europe, that is continental Europe, They are able to communicate with each other. How? By writing their books and letters in Latin. That's the lingua franca for the learned people back then. They were able to speak in Latin. So let's say you are a German Lutheran. You speak German. You don't speak English, but you speak German but you are also able to write, read, and speak in Latin, and you come to England to give a lecture, what language are you using? Latin. So, whether you are German, French, Italian, Dutch, English, whatever back then, you should be able to communicate everything that you want to communicate in Latin. Latin. That's a very important fact. So let me quote a section from a book, Richard Muller, he, his book, Post Reformation Reformed Dogmatics, 1520 to 1725, the rise of Reformed Orthodoxy. He says, It is also during the early Orthodox period that Reformed theology assumed truly international dimensions. The systems of Calvin, Vermilie, Musiculus, and Bullinger had extensive circulation not only in Switzerland, but also in German Reformed territories, the Netherlands, and England. Why? Because most of their works are written in Latin. Anybody who knows Latin can pick it up, read, and understand. So we are looking at 1643, 120, 121 English men sitting in the parliament, about six delegates from Scotland. They are drawing in from the international scholarship. We are now 2022. And we think about 1643, that's a long time ago. When you actually read these people, 1643, it will humble you. One of the things that we were required to read during this MTI OPC was few articles on hypothetical universalism. I was, it was just so hard. <laughs> And you just read confession of faith, justification and sanctification, things like that. And what people back then, they were debating. I mean, it is just mind-blowing. So people are writing, refuting, interacting with each other at an international level. So the Westminster Confession of Faith is actually is the product of international Reformed theology. Okay, So that's something that is not immediately clear, but what they are ta- talking about when they are making this, they are drawing from continental Reformed theologians. He said this, and they had their own people, English people, Parkins, Ames, Whitaker, Gattaca, Baxter, Owen, They are respected in the continental uh, Europe as well. Now let me to now talk about the predecessors of the Westminster Confession of Faith. There are three, one implicit and two explicit predecessors. First of all, implicit is the apostles creed. Apostles' Creed, if you will recall, it goes from the Father to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. That's the basic outline of the Apostles' Creed. If you pick up any confession during that time, it will follow that structure, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Church, and the last things. So it it vaguely follows that step. Most of the Lutheran and Reformed confessions follow that order. So I asked this question to Dr. Van Dixon, who is the, actually the world, world's authority on the Westminster Confession. So is it fair to say, I asked him, is it fair to say, to describe the Westminster Confession as Trinitarian Confession? He said no. He wouldn't affirm that. But, but the book that he is the general editor of this book, and John Bauer says that. So Westminster Confession largely follows implicitly the structure of the Apostles' Creed. Fair enough. Two explicit predecessors. Something to remember. Now, in 1643, you are an English pastor or theologian, and the, the, their, their learning is profound. Um, and you are asked now to write up a confession. What would you do? If somebody asks you to write something, whatever field that you, you are familiar with, you will usually look at some other works, Right? that are written by other people. Westminster Divines, the theologians, did the same thing. And here's a crucial information that I really haven't picked up from any other book, was 1643, same year, July 1st, right? Same year, the book was republished, and the name of the book was The Harmony of the Protestant Confessions. I told you it was an international scholarship and it was a robust interactions between all of the parties involved. And everybody knew who published what, who published in Italy, and they want to read it. If, if somebody of fame produced something in Dutch, they want to read about that. So they are exchanging, buying, translating, reading, and so on. And one of the books that was republished was The Harmony of the Protestant Confessions. Basically, what that book was was the collection of the continental confessions. And there were a lot. So, the the divines at the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Assembly, they had this, like a, this is like a dictionary. They want to see what the Protestant churches are doing in the continental Europe. So, according to John Bauer, they picked up from that book the order and the structure of the Westminster Confession of Faith, using that book as their template. Right? They don't want to reinvent the wheel and say, oh, what should I say? You know, what, what should we talk about? What, what should we write as a confession? Or why don't we look at some of the things that other people did? And they just so happened to have that in 1643. They had it as a collection, the Harmony of the Protestant Confession. So Westminster Confession would follow the pattern set by other churches in Europe. And they want to do that because they want to say, we trace our heritage back to the general church of Jesus Christ. We are not unique. We are not doing something new. We are basically doing what all other churches are doing. So they had this big uh, book for their use um, as, as their template. The order and the structure they follow from that book. Second one is this. Second, their explicit predecessor for the Westminster Confession of Faith, I've, I've known this from another book um, that was published about a decade ago. Letham, Robert Lethem is an OP Minister too, professor. That the Westminster Confession of Faith, it began in 1643, was adopted in 1647, but Latham said in his book that the Westminster Confession of Faith is very similar to the Irish articles. Civil war is going on in England. How many nations are there there at the time? There is English, England there is Scotland, and there is Ireland. Uh, Each nation had its own confession. Let me tell you those things. On the English side, Church of England, correct? Church of England, which is an Anglican church, they had the 39 articles, 1562, 1562, 39 articles still you go to any of a anglican church you look it up their communion will use the 39 articles just like we are using the westminster confession of faith 39 articles for the english church scottish people they had their own confession scottish confession of faith or scots or the scots confession 1560 who wrote that john Knox who wrote 39 articles for the English church? Thomas Cranmer. He wrote 42, but they reduced it down to 39. So each nation and each church, they had their own national confession. 39 articles for the English, Scots confession for the Scottish, but on the Irish side, they had the Irish confession. Who wrote that? Ireland is traditionally a Catholic land. But at the time, the top guy for the Irish church was someone named James Usher. So James Usher, he wrote the Irish articles in 1615. I know it's hard to follow, but the Scottish and the English ones in the 1560s, But the Irish one was written in 1615. Where are we? When are we? 1643. So Irish articles was the most recent one. So when you compare the Irish articles, it has more refined statements than the first two. First two are very crude. But the Irish article 1615 by James Usher is a fine document. So Westminster divines are here at the Westminster Abbey, 1643. The Parliament called them two from each county. You had to come. So they came and they have to write this new confession. So what do they do? They look at the harmony. Oh, let's see what other people did. And let's also look at our own tradition. English articles, 39 articles, contain much of a Roman Catholic stuff in it. So Scottish people, they don't like it. English people don't like the Scottish confession because Scottish confession is a Presbyterian confession and it is a very strict on church discipline. I mean, it's just amazing what they say in the, in the confession. So English people say, Parliament says, we don't like the Scots Confession. Scots say, they say, we don't like English Confession. So what's left? The Irish Confession. And Irish Confession is the most advanced one, which, like I said, I knew from Lethem's book about 10 years ago. But it was not until this spring... When I was reading this book, John Bauer, John Bauer is an M.D. He's a, he's a doctor. And he said, I'm bored. Uh, I am going to collect all the known existing manuscripts of the Westminster Confession of Faith and I am going to compare all of them and produce the most accurate Westminster Confession of Faith without error. So half of the book is the introduction where you see all these flags that i put in. Half of them is the most accurate text of the Westminster Confession. In this book, John Bauer has sections where he compares the Irish articles on the one side and the Westminster Confession on the other side. When I read them, I almost cried because that beautiful, profound statements that you find in the Westminster Confession of Faith, not everything, but a lot, was taken directly from the Irish articles. And I was crying. Uh, I thought the Westminster Confession of Faith was produced purely by the Westminster divines, but what do they do? They copy. (laughs) They go to Irish articles and say, "That, that sounds good. And why don't we just use that? And some portions are just word for word, verbatim copy from the Irish articles. So conclusion is this. James Usher is the father of the Westminster Confession of Faith. I don't think that's a stretch. Some of you think, Yes, so that is the pre-existing document they use. Not entirely, no. Westminster Confession, obviously, is better. But they use that platform by the James Archer in the same sense as William Tyndale is the father of the King James Bible. Because King James Bible is not a new translation. They take Tyndale's Bible and they just tweak it, just like LSB. They take an NAS, ASB and they tweak it. So Westminster Confession didn't start from the scratch, is my point. And they had, it had predecessors. Implicit was what? Implicit one was what? The Apostles' Creed. But two more uh, explicit one is the harmony of the Continental Confession and, most important document that they used is the Irish Articles by James Usher. Now, let me devote the next few minutes into this section. This this was missing, missing puzzle, at least for, from my perspective, something that I wanted to know. Um, and let me try to tackle this, how it was done, how Westminster Confession was done. This is important because If you look up in the Amazon, Westminster Confession of Faith, you will find the commentaries, but you will not find such information that I'm about to share, and and I believe it comes mainly from this, some from even B.B. Warfield's work. 1643 again, July 1st, they gather. Parliament is now the new king. And they're fighting. And King is in Oxford. He ran away. And he is there. Westminster Abbey is in the Westminster City. And it was never overrun by the royalist force. So they're not fighting outside. The war is waging far away from where they're sitting. But when they gather, the parliament gives them the order. And they have to listen to them. And the order is this you guys revise the English articles. What was that? What's the name of the English article? Faith? 39 articles. So July 1st until September for three months July, August, and September 25th for three months. The Westminster divines, we call them pastors and theologians, they are doing what? They are revising the English 39 articles that they've been using. But in September, something else happens. I told you, civil war is going on with, with the parliamentarian forces against royalist forces. But now, in the beginning of the war, King's side is winning. So the Parliament is losing. So what do they do? They need manpower. And they turn to whom? They look up and they, they find Scottish people. They want Scots to come down and fight for them. They want to make that military alliance with the Scottish people. So in September 25th, they sign this contract known as the Solemn League and Covenant. You can pick it up and, and read. Basically, it is a contract between two parliaments. Scottish had their own parliaments, but was ruled by the English king at the time. Uh, so they, this, they, the parliament, Scottish parliament and English parliament, they are signing this solemn league and covenant, saying, we are doing this for God. We are fighting against the king because king has corrupted pure religion. So we are making this contract now to stand firm against this this king. Now, the problem is, like I said, Scottish people, they are Presbyterians. They are far away from the crown, and they, they are largely Presbyterian under the influence already from 1560s by John Knox. They look at English articles, like I said, you don't like that. I don't like English articles because it says something very close to what Roman Church was saying. So English Parliament says to the divines, forget what you've been doing for the past three months. Now it is time to draw up a new, new work. So the Westminster Confession of Faith truly begins in that fall, September. So what did they do for the past three months? They've been revising what Robert Norris says When the Confession of Faith came to be drafted, that's a new one, the clear and defined thinking that resulted from these first debates on the revision of the 39 articles reduced the time needed for discussion and conduced to the clarity and conciseness that are hallmarks of the Westminster Standards. So for three months, they revised first, um, first 15 articles, for 15 or 16 articles of the English articles, but they are the core doctrines of, uh, of faith. So they had already run through with that. So when the parliament says, start a new one, they already have materials to write, The Westminster Confession of Faith. How did they do this? By doing this, which they have learned during the summer. There were three standing committees. They divide 120 people into three groups and assign to each group certain topics. Group one, you get creation, you get the scripture, group two, you get justification. And the exact division is here. So they assign to three standing committees different topics. And what they do is they break it in, they break into sessions and they debate. They write their own articles. And they come together and they will go by point by point, article by article, and they will have open debates. You see how it works? You do the pre-work, you divide, and you do your own writing, and you bring it back. And let's say today is the session 125, let's talk about justification. So group two, you guys have been working on justification, bring it up here. And somebody will read. And then now it's open for discussion. And people will stand up, will debate, and think about that. There was no AC. Largely, they are middle-aged men, and you do not have PowerPoint. And the wardings discussing theological points purely by listening, jotting down. How do they write? They don't have pens. They have ink and pen and some papers, and they have to write it down. It 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 is a lot going on. So three standing committees, they revise first 15 articles in three months. And from those three months' practice, they get the headings, 33 chapters, procedures. How are we going to write? When you put 120 men to draw up a confession, how how do they do it? By doing that, procedures, an inventory of insight. Fun facts, listen to this. From July 1st, 1643, to 1649 February, it held 1,163 sessions. Their daily schedule was this 6 a.m., there's a prayer meeting and preaching, 6 a.m. 9 a.m., the debates begin. 12 o'clock to 2 o'clock p.m., 2 p.m., is their lunch break. 2 to 5 p.m. is their final session. 120, six from Scotland, and 40 lay persons from the parliament, and all in all, we are looking at about, I don't know, 160 people, but... What I heard is that average attendance was low. I thought under twenty Westminster Divines, all dressed in white, they gather and everybody's sitting down and writing their statements. But men are men, and after lunch nobody comes back. So, so there's a plea saying you guys need to attend. And Dr. Van Dixon said more than one time that they had more than six pints of beer in them at all times. And I asked this very smart question to him that nobody was asking and no book would discuss. I asked him, who's paying them? I mean, it's a serious question. 120 people, war is going on. Most of them are married people. 1643 to 46 and 47, they adopted the Scottish Church. So about five years, you are unemployed. You are sitting in the Westminster Abbey from 9 to 5. Where do you sleep? Where do you go to eat? Where's your family? Who's paying them? And I asked this question all on to Dr. Van Dixen, and he said, that's a good question. He said, the parliament is paying them a very low amount. And he also said, some of them, because the royalist pastors fled from the Westminster city, they, some of them were able to get their jobs as pastors in those local parish churches, some will commute from those new homes and churches. Some will just have to survive on their own. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, I've heard him saying that the entire Westminster Assembly project, it's not just a confession, they produce like five or six documents, but it was sponsored by the parliament with today's dollars about only, it cost them only $20,000. U.S. dollars. That's, that's a low for... And Dr. Van Dixon said the theologians sitting in the assembly, they had to petition the parliament many times to send them the paycheck, the money, because they haven't been paid. That's a serious, serious question. So the parliament is paying them five years of sitting down daily And as I was thinking about the entire process, it dawned on me that Westminster Confession was drawn up with a very similar process like what we do in our presbytery meetings. That's exactly what is happening. You divide them up into groups, committees, And you appoint chairs, you send them away, and you come, and you debate, and people fight. People who want to talk, they will always talk. No matter what the discussion, they will always raise their hand. They will always talk. Dissenters will always dissent. So as I was studying all of that, it, it basically finally dawned on me, it is basically like sitting in a presbytery meeting for five years, nine to five, every day. If I would ask Elder the time, if anybody had ever said in the presbytery meetings, I don't know, I would run away. <laughs> I would open the window, I would jump out, and I would go. I would run away, far away from that assembly. It, it is a... Monumental task. It it, it 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 is a lot. It is not a person writing down. So many confessions up until that time, they all had primary author. It is usually one person writing everything or a couple of persons. Westminster Confession of Faith has some Irish articles help. Fifteen seventeen, now sixteen forty-three, about about hundred years. Theology didn't stand still. It advanced. I will talk about it probably next Sunday. Just a couple of points. And Westminster Confession will reflect that. But sitting every day, nine to five, oral debates. I mean, think about that. Think about doing that every day. That's what we have. Final one something that i've learned anew is this what is the hallmark of the westminster confession the brevity how how short it is but at the same time it says everything that it has to say with that beautiful succinct summaries of of those those, those words. That's the power of the Westminster Confession. It is very difficult to explain something. For example, what's the difference between justification and sanctification? You want to express it in, in like a few sentences. How was that achieved? With 120 people fighting over. And I read some portions that he said, John Bauer says, from the minutes of Van Dixon's work. What they, what they talked about. Usually, same people speak. Imagine our own Presbyterian meeting. It's the same people. Same people speak. So, you, you, if you're an unknown pastor, you're sitting there, and big names, the theologians, the well-known persons, they are talking. So, you're sitting in the corner, quietly. What did they do? They make this genius move to make this possible. They make another committee called Warding Committee. They have editorial power. They will debate, but they will send it over to the Warding Committee. The Warding Committee Less than 10 people will take those rough statements, rough drafts, they'll go back. And they'll come out with polished statements. And yes, the assembly has to vote on it. They have to allow it. They have to say yes to their revisions. But most of the times they are tired, too tired. Um, but at the same time, they trust them, their work. It's like John Mallon, right? Right, when we we debate, John Mallon usually polishes everything and we we nod. I mean, he, he knows what he's doing. So it's like that. So all those debates, the fine points, they debate. Some people say this and they take it back to their room. And they come out with these statements and they read it in everybody's hearing and they vote on it. But usually they will just simply say yes. That's how the Westminster Confession was made. I will give you a name. The committee chair who oversaw the whole thing. His name is Anthony Tuckney. For past three months, I've been reading, I don't know, just so, so many things. But when you read so many things, what happens is that same people reappear. You learn new things. Oh, who's that? Oh, who's that? Gattaca. Who's the Aerosmith? Uh, Who is Guji? Who is this person? And you you pick a few names and, and it is interesting. But Anthony Tuckney, I don't know if you have ever heard about him. Anthony Tuckney is the one who is responsible for the final product that we have in our Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger catechism. He's an Oxford scholar, and only one book is av- available on him, Anthony Tuckney, theologian of the Westminster Assembly. He's the one who's tweaking the words, making right decisions, and he, John Bauer has some of the sections in it. Rough draft is about this much. Warding committee goes back and comes out with a half of it. They, they just strike everything down and make just polish it. And the power of the confession is really from Anthony Tuckney, Theologian of the Westminster by Young Chun Cho. He is an associate pastor in a jubilee church in Philadelphia, Westminster PhD. So that's it. That's, that's really all I am going to spend on the background. I know this is a lot for some of you. If some of you, if you don't like history, this is just boring stuff. But I think it's worthwhile for us. If I had resources and whatnot, I would make every year, July, as Westminster Confession of Faith Conference Month. You know, July 1st, it commenced, and, and, and it just, you, cannot, you cannot exhaustively know the whole thing. So you will spend as much time possible, but also refresh the memory for the people of God. Why it is important? Why? What can we learn from those things? So that really is it for today. Next Sunday, next, next Sunday I want to spend a couple of points. How Westminster Confession is different from all that went before it. Namely, it talks about covenant and adoption. Simple points. And another one, I will talk and speak on that well-known question and answer. Usually we talk about shorter catechism, but I will speak on the larger catechism. So two more Sundays. Next Sunday, most advanced confession of faith, what does it contain that others didn't have? Covenant and adoption. Next one, if you ever attended good Presbyterian church, you should know the question and answers to the larger or shorter catechism, but the larger catechism, what's the chief end, and we will talk about that. And we'll see if I think it's necessary to spend a few more Sundays out, but probably two more Sundays and thank you for listening. I don't know if anybody fell asleep. I didn't see anybody falling asleep. That's a good sign. A lot to think about. It just makes you a sober-minded Christian. Can you match up? Right, I'm asking that question. Can you, can you match up their knowledge of the Scripture? theology, holiness, their perseverance in their 1640s when the war is going on. You don't know if king wins, you die because king told them not to go. Let's pray.